helped me this last week. It's a great reminder to me and, uh, and to you as well. My hope and your hope isn't in what we've done or can do for God. Our hope's all in what he's done for us. None of us deserve anything from God except his wrath. Uh, and we, we've got to understand that, haven't we? God owes you and me absolutely nothing. Even those of us who, who recognize Jesus and, and acknowledge to him that we're, we're sinners, we still deserve nothing. Those, those of you who've worked hard in the church for years and years and you've served and you do serve and you want to serve and you've given and you continue to give and you want to give, God owes you nothing. Maybe when, when we think about what, the, the fact that God owes us nothing, we think, well, I'll just be satisfied then to avoid hell. God would be good if, if he just allowed me to avoid hell. We're sinners who deserve hell. And God's merciful and he's not going to send us to hell. And that's enough. Even if it means ceasing to exist, being wiped out, it's more than we deserve because we deserve hell. But God hasn't done that, has he? He's not just said to us, well, you don't have to go to hell. He hasn't just done that. He's determined that we'll go to heaven. He's determined that we'll be with him forever in the most blissful existence possible for all eternity. And not only that, but he's, he's said to us, I've, I've made you righteous before me. I've determined you'll go to heaven rather than hell. I've, I've also adopted you into my family. I treat you as I treat Jesus. I've made you a co-heir with him of all that he owns. All that Jesus has earned, it's ours. And not only that, but he says, not only do I do that for you in the future, but listen, my promise is I'm going to walk with you every day. You might not feel it, you might not experience it, but I'm going to walk with you every day by my spirit. I'm going to give you this access to me called prayer, and you can talk to me anytime. And I'm going to love you, and I'm going to give you security, and I'm going to bless you in your life. I'm going to be faithful to you, even when you're stupid and foolish. And we think, well, what could we do to deserve that? And, and the answer is nothing. What could we build for God? What, what could we make for God? What could we give to God to deserve that? Nothing. He's promised, when, when we are stupid and sinful, rather than disown us, he's promised to correct us. And he pours his grace out on us every single day as a God who's rich in mercy. I'd be happy to avoid hell, but he's given me so much more. God's a gracious, generous, and kind God. We can't offer God anything that would enhance him in any way. We can't offer God anything that would make him better in any way. But he blesses us and enhances us constantly. And that's what we see in this chapter today. David wants to bless God. It's a great intention. But instead of David blessing God... God says to David, I want to bless you, David, and I'm going to bless you in a way that's going to blow you away. So this chapter's first about a, a covenant. It's a promise that God makes to, to David. It's one of the most important chapters in the Bible, this, in terms of the timeline of the Bible. It shapes the timeline of the Bible because God promises that the Christ, that the Messiah, is going to come from David's family. It's called the Davidic Covenant. It's a big passage in, in terms of the storyline of the Bible. 
but, but the blessings and the principles and the promises of this chapter, they apply to us. We're enjoying the promises of this chapter now. And we can say in the past we've experienced the, the blessings of this chapter in our lives. So we're going to look at, at God's grace and how we should respond to it. I'm going to set the scene first of all. David's settled in Jerusalem. You know, that they've taken the capital, taken Jerusalem as the capital, haven't they? Um, this is probably a bit later on in David's reign. There's a period of peace. David's living in luxury for the first time. He's got a house and he's living in this lovely panelled house made out of cedar wood. And you can imagine him, can't you? Him and Nathan the prophet, they're sat on David's veranda and they're, they're drinking coffee in the evening and they're talking about how much God's blessed them. And David says, you know what, Nathan, I feel a bit uncomfortable. God has done so much for me. Look at the house I live in. And yet the ark, it's living in a tent. I need to do something about that. I need to, I need to do something to bless and honor God. And Nathan's there, well, that's a great idea, David. It's, it's, it's a no-brainer, David. We don't even need to pray about this one. It's obvious. Go for it, David. Build. And Nathan goes home, and David goes to bed that night thinking about the house that he's going to build for the ark. Have they done anything wrong? You could say that Nathan should have consulted the Lord first, but I think that, that would have been pushing him doing something wrong. David wants to honor God. David's uncomfortable that he's living in luxury and the holiest item in the universe, the Ark of the Covenant, that represents God's presence with his people, is being kept in a tent. It's a beautiful tent, but it's a tent. And David wants to build something for God. That night, as Nathan goes off to bed, the Lord speaks to him and he's got a message for David. It's a stunning message. It teaches again about God's grace. Effectively, the Lord says through Nathan to David, David... You're not going to do something to bless me. I'm going to do something to bless you. David, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build one for you. And it'll last forever. This is not going to be Project David. This is going to be Project God. We need to understand, don't we, that God is a God who blesses us far more than we deserve. What God does for us is far more important than anything we can do for him. I think that's the lesson of this passage. David's intentions are honorable. He wants to bless God. But the God who's already done so much for David says, no, David, you sit back. I'm going to do something for you. And so we see God's grace as we look at verse 1 through to verse 17. Look, firstly, what has God done? Well, we look at verse 4 uh, through to verse 9, as, as God speaks to Nathan, he reminds Nathan to remind David of everything that he's done for him. And we, we see why the Lord doesn't want the house, or it's going to be the temple. He doesn't want it building yet. Look at verse 5. This is not a telling off. Effectively from verse 5 to verse 7, the Lord gives the reason why he doesn't want the temple building just yet. We're told later on one of the reasons is because there's been a lot of war in David's time and God wants to build it in peace. But here's, here's the, the big reason, and it's, it's simple and it's stunning. The Lord's happy just to be where his people are. Doesn't need a house. In Exodus 29, the Lord says to Moses, He says, I will dwell amongst the children of Israel. I will be their God. 
They'll know that I'm the Lord their God who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. And then we're told, why did the Lord bring them out of the land of Egypt? Why did God rescue his people? So that I may dwell amongst them because I am the Lord their God. What does that tell you about God? That it's this, that as sinful as we are, God can't get close enough to us. What's the Lord's desire? It's to be with his people. Wherever we are, that's where the Lord says, I want to be. Blows your mind, doesn't it? The Lord says, my people are in the wilderness. That's where I'll set up camp. Once my people are settled down, I'll settle down. And if you love the Lord Jesus, then the message is this, that if you're struggling in the middle of a crisis, that's where he'll be. He doesn't dwell in a temple made with hands. He, he fills the universe, but, but he dwells with you. Even more amazing through his spirit, he, he dwells in you. And Israel isn't fully settled. There are still going to be things to do. There are things, still going to be people to settle. And until then, the Lord says, keep the tabernacle. And it's a really important reason he's doing it. In pagan societies, what David was planning to do were perfectly fine. Obviously, David wasn't a pagan, but, but he was building a house for his God. That's what pagans did. They built houses for their gods to win their favor. And our God turns that concept on his head. This is why Christianity is different to other religions. The Lord says, I'm, you, you don't have to earn this, David. I'm going to give you. David, you're not going to build for me. I'm going to build for you. The gospel isn't about what we do for God. It's what, about, it's what God in Jesus has done for us. We've got to grasp that. And the Lord wants to bring in a, a new era for Israel. He wants to settle them in the land. He wants them to know safety and security. As a nation, all they've ever known is turmoil. You know, they've been in, in Egypt as slaves. They've been in the wilderness. They've been fighting battles. And the Lord wants them now to have a home, and he wants them to enjoy it. He wants them to come into the promised land. It's a picture of the promised land that will come into one day. God's desire for his people has always been that we'll dwell with him in peace. That's what Eden was, isn't it? Eden was God's people dwelling with God in safety and peace. That's what Jerusalem's going to be about. With David, God wants his, his people to dwell in peace. What's the ultimate place going to be where God wants to dwell with his people in, in peace? God's gracious plan all the way through the Bible is that he will not rest until his people have been brought into a city that's so safe you don't even have to have gates. God's gracious plan all the way through the Bible it's simply this, to dwell with his people. Do you see the point? The Lord says in verse 8, have I ever asked for a house? The point is this, David, it's lovely that you want to bless me. But that's not my priority. My priority is to be where my people are. The wilderness want a pretty place. It were barren, it were hard, it were unpleasant, it were dangerous. And the Lord says, well, if that's where my people are, that's where I'll be. That's where I'll pitch my tent. That's massive for us because it means that wherever you are today, wherever you are in your faith, wherever you are in your marriage, wherever you are in your struggles, the Lord says, that's where I want to be. The first thing that the Lord wants David to know is to David, my priority isn't for you to build a temple to honor me. My priority is to be with my people. We don't have to go to cathedrals and temples and fancy things that people build for their gods. In other religions, you go there to meet God. But the Bible tells about the God who comes to meet with us. 
The God who the universe can't contain, who's super holy, who can't be contained in a temple, doesn't need a temple. He says, I'll be wherever my people are. Jesus doesn't say to you this morning, whatever troubles you're facing, whatever mess you're in, don't worry, because when you come through it, I'll be waiting for you. He says, wherever you are, that's where I'll be. That's always been God's priority from, from Eden through to New Jerusalem. Once his people are settled, then he'll settle. We see the fulfillment of this in Jesus, don't we? Who is Jesus? Is God with us. Jesus came to tabernacle amongst us. He came to dwell amongst us. Jesus came to live amongst his people. He didn't live in palaces. He didn't have anywhere to lay his head because he wanted to be where his people were. We see it ultimately fulfilled when Jesus returns and we're going to dwell with him forever. And the Lord's teaching David, I think, David, don't miss this. It's great that you want to build me a temple. David, I'm just happy being where my people are. And then the Lord reminds David of everything he's done for him. He says, David, you were a shepherd when I first met you. You know, you were cleaning up poo and feeding sheep. And now you're the king. I've done that, David, because I've been with you everywhere you've ever gone. I've protected you from all your enemies. When, when you were running away from the Philistines uh, and when you were running away from Saul and when your life were hanging by a thread, David, I were with you and I protected you. And now everything's come right. David, I've been with you. Maybe, maybe you can look back. I know I can look back and you can see what you were and, and maybe you can see where you were and, and you can see the Lord's protection on you. Lord, you got me through that. My problem is I always see that in hindsight, never at the time. But I can look back in my life, I can look back in my leadership, I can look back at situations and I thought, this could finish me off. This could be the end. And I'll look back and say, Lord, you were with me. Can you do that? We can trace the Lord's faithfulness in seemingly impossible situations because he's not a God who's far away from us. He's not a God who says, come through this and I'll be waiting. He's a God who says, I'm with you in it. God has been with David, through many trials, or through many dangers, sorry, toils and snares, I have already come. David, thank you. But it's really not about what you do for me. It's all about what I've done for you. God's been with his people just like he has been with us. And then in verse 10, what happens is we change tenses. We move from, from God reminding David of what he's done for him in the past and we move to the promises that he's going to make David for the future. It's called the Davidic Covenant. All that David wanted to do was bless God, build something for God. But the Lord says, no, David, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do more for you than you could ask or think. And firstly, the Lord promises security for his people. That will dwell in their own place and not be oppressed anymore. Now, we see that partially fulfilled in David's time and the years that follow. There were great peace during Solomon's reign, but it kicked off again after that. The ultimate peace and security for God's people will be when Jesus returns and the Lord's promising David a king that'll do that and then in verse 11 the Lord says to David David I'll make you a house in, in this chapter there's loads of times when the word house or dwell or live is used and verses 12 to 16 they're the they're the key verses in the chapter when the Lord talks about building a house for David he's not talking about bricks and mortar he's talking about a dynasty He's talking about an ongoing line of succession. 
And this is what the Lord's going to do. He says, David, I'm going to establish your seed, verse 12. Well, you remember in, in Genesis with Abraham where the Lord says, I'm going to establish your seed. It's, it's the same promise. David, I'm going to establish your children. And initially, we could say God's referring to Solomon, but it goes beyond Solomon. Solomon would be allowed to build the temple, but it goes beyond that because Solomon had failed. But God won't fail Solomon. We read it in verse 15, don't we? The Lord says, when, you know, when Solomon fails, I'll correct him. I'll be a father to him. Verse 15, he says, I won't take my mercy away, David. My plan will not fail. And the crowning promises is that the Lord says, David, I'm going to establish your dynasty forever. In Israel, there were loads of civil wars, the constant coups. The kings of Israel were changing families all the time. But despite all the trouble in, in Judah, in the southern kingdom, in David's line, that never happened. Despite all the troubles, God protected David's family. There's a passage later on in Kings where there's a coup and, uh, and all, the, all the royal children are killed and one of them's hidden and kept because God's promised to keep David's line. And eventually, if you, you begin reading your New Testament at the beginning of Matthew and you read about all these people and then you read about Jesus Christ, the son of David. God kept his promise. Luke 31 says oh, that, that Jesus of the line of David will rule forever. That's the building that God cares about. That's the house that God cares about. David, you want to build something for me. That's lovely, David. Let me show you what I want to do for you. David, I'm going to blow your mind. David, I'm going to make sure that my promise and my presence is with your son and his son and his son and his son and his son. And, his son, and I'm going to preserve your dynasty. And one day, when the Messiah comes, the ultimate king, is going to be known as the king from David's family. And he's going to rule forever and ever. And he's going to provide safety for my people forever and ever. And he's going to provide a dwelling place for my people forever and ever. See, David, you want to build me this house? That's lovely. Look at what I'm going to do for my people. All David wanted to do was build a house for the ark. The Lord says, David, I want to do so much more for you. Our God is the God who has been with us and who will always be with us. He's the God who does more for us than we can ever do for him. He's gracious. He gives and he gives and he gives. And that leaves, it's the second part, but it's not as long. How should we respond to a God who gives like this? Well, we see two, two ways how we respond to God's grace. David shows us two ways, and they're quite simple and they're quite short. And the first one is we praise him. Look at verse 18 to 24. Look what David says in verse 18. He says, who am I that you've brought me this far? Do you ever ask that question or a similar question? Lord, who am I? that you've been so good to me? Who am I that you've been so faithful to me? That's what David's asking. Who am I, Lord, that you've done so much for me? Do we, do we praise God as we should for what he's done? Remember how we started? We deserve hell. We deserve God's wrath. If it wasn't for, for, for all that God had done for me, I don't know where I'd be now. If the Lord hadn't saved my mum and dad 40 years ago, if, if the Lord hadn't exposed me to the gospel as a kid, if the Lord hadn't protected me from things that I wanted to do and were drawn to as a teenager, if the Lord hadn't introduced me to Liz, if the Lord hadn't protected my marriage, if the Lord hadn't protected my time at Holbrook, if the Lord hadn't forgiven me time and time again when I'm stupid, and I don't mean in the past, I mean now, where would I be? Who am I that the Lord has been so good to me? Who are you that the Lord has been so good to you? 
I joke with Liz. I say, if I hadn't met you, Liz, I'd be minted and driving a sports car now. And the reality is, I might be. But I'd be on my way to hell. I'm positive I'd be an addict of some kind. But look what God's done for me. And look what God's done for you. Who am I, who are you, that God has been so merciful? That's the first thing David says. Lord, who am I that you've been so good to me? You've brought me from nothing and you've given me everything. He's promised us eternal life. He's forgiven our sin. He's forgiven our shame. And not only that, when we say, Lord, I'm never going to do these stupid things again, and we do them stupid things, he forgives us again. And so I'm still building you a house. And in verse 19, David says, and that's just the beginning of what you've done for me. So far, Lord, what you've done... All that you've done for me in saving me, in making me king, in protecting me. Lord, that's, that's, that's tiny in your sight. That's a small thing in your sight, David says. I don't think that's a small thing. I think it's huge. But what David's saying in comparison to what you've got for me, we think about all the things that the Lord's done for us. And the Lord says to us, you ain't seen nothing yet. Wait, wait to see what I've got for you. We think we've experienced God's blessings in this life. We ain't seen nothing yet. And we join David in verse 22. You are great, O Lord. There is none like you. There is no God besides you. How do we respond to God's goodness? We, we simply praise him. Praise him for his goodness. Praise him for his faithfulness. Thank him for what he's done for us so far. But second thing we do, as well as praise him, we pray. Verse 25 to 29. It's really important, this is. God's promises are there to be prayed over. We say, well, if God's promised something, why do I need to pray over it? Because God can't break his promises. But the way God brings his promises about is through our prayers. If you look through the Bible at some of the great prayers in the Bible, they're actually prayers that are quoting God's promises to him and saying, Lord, please do it. You have, you have Moses, when Israel sins with the golden calf and Moses prays, with mer- prays for mercy for him, how does he pray for mercy? He says, Lord, remember your promise to Abraham. When Daniel, looks, uh, when Daniel asks God to, to deliver the, the Jews from the exile after 70 years, he does it after reading God's promise to Jeremiah to, to do just that. And, da- and Daniel's praying, Lord, I've read this in Jeremiah, please do it. A Puritan called William Gurnall said, prayer is reversing God's promises and turning them into an argument that we present to him in faith. Prayer is reversing God's promises and turning them into an argument that we use in faith. I'm not great at that. Gary reminded us the other week, didn't he, of the 8,000 plus promises that that are in the Bible. How often do we pray over God's promises? That's what it means. You know when, when the Lord says, ask anything in my name and I'll do it? Anything according to my will, I'll do it. He's not saying, ask anything in my name and I'll do it. When he says in my name, he means according to what I've promised in the Bible. According to the 8,000 promises in the Bible. Now, them 8,000 promises might not be specific to someone you name. But the promise is there for us to pray over. And that's what David does. David says, Lord, these things, what you've promised, are amazing. Lord, do them. Make them happen, Lord. Lord, respectfully, you've promised, now do it. That's the, wouldn't that be a great way to pray on Tuesday? Lord, this is what your word promises. Lord, do it. God's promised to, to hear our prayers with compassion. He's promised to give us the things that he's promised if we pray about them. And along with, with God's promises, David prays for God's glory. 
It says, Lord, glorify your name. Now, I don't have a little story or illustration for this. It's simply this, to learn to praise God for his faithfulness rather than always bemoaning our miserableness. Praise God for all that he does for us. Try and cultivate that attitude, I'm going to be thankful rather than miserable. I'm going to thank God for what he's done for us rather than complain. We join with David, don't we, and we say, who am I, Lord, that you have brought me this far, and yet, Lord, we ain't seen nothing yet. Is it wrong for us to want to do great things for God? No, we should want to do great things for God. We should want to make big sacrifices. We should want to build things for him. But it's just a corrective, isn't it, that our our great hope, our great confidence isn't in what we do for God. We should want to, we should do it. Our confidence isn't what I've done for God. Because anything you've done for God, you can have done the most for God out of anyone in human history. And it's that much. It's wonderful to want to plan to do something for Jesus but our hope and our confidence and our joy is in what he does for us do do we need to think about this at all but do we need to be challenged as a leadership there's things that we should be doing there's things that we want to do there's ambitions we want to have and they're good and they're right and they're proper but we've got to remember in the context it's Jesus that builds his church so how do we respond to this chapter well we praise God for all that he's done We praise him for his goodness to us, praise him for his protection. We thank him that none of that's dependent on what we do for him, because if it did, we'd be finished. I don't know about you, I'm so grateful that my standing with God depends on what he's done, because I I fail him every day. I feel empty sometimes. You know, when it comes to to blessing God and and praising him and praying his promises, I feel such a fraud, because I don't do that often. Sometimes I feel out of inspiration, out of ideas, out of energy, out of zeal, guilty about my prayer life, guilty about other things, the list goes on, and I have to be reminded of this, my hope isn't in what I've done for him, it's in what he's done for me. I don't know whether it fits, but this story came to my mind, I just remembered as I was finishing writing the message. A bloke called Sinclair Ferguson, uh, he's still alive, he's an amazing Christian bloke. He's been a brilliant theologian, brilliant writer, fantastic pastor and preacher done lots and lots of things for the Lord in his life. And we should strive to be like him. But he said something in one of his sermons, something like this. He said, on the day when I meet God, I've got in mind what I'm going to say to him. Can you think what you'd say when you come to meet God? He said, I've got in mind what I'm going to say to him. I think it'll be something like this. Lord, I'm so sorry I lived like I did. Lord, if I'd have known it was going to be this glorious... I'd have done more. I'd have made myself more useful. I'd have sacrificed more. I'd have given more. I'd have done more for you. Lord, I have done nothing to deserve this. And he says, I can anticipate the Lord's reply. The Lord will say to me, when did you ever think you could do anything to deserve this? It's not about doing that. It's about grace. He says, and I'll say, Lord, at last I can see it. At last I can see it's about what you've done for me, not what I've done for you. Do we see that this morning? What could we ever do? What could you ever do for God to deserve what he's done for you in Jesus? You could build a spiritual skyscraper. It doesn't compare to what God's done for us in Jesus.
and I want to, and I should, and you want to, and you should, and we will, by God's grace, do more and more to bless his name. But as we do that, we've got to remember this, my security, my standing, my legacy, my future is always in what God's done for me and never in what I've done for him. We're going to listen and sing. Um, It's a new tune, but an old song, a debtor to mercy alone.
For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his Spirit, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.